Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. We turn our attention now to our third talk in our series on the Kingdom of the Cults. And I'll remind you of what I said the first program about what we mean here by the word cult. It is used traditionally in the term of religious expression, and in that way, the rites of the Catholic Church are considered a cult in a positive way. This is the traditional meaning of the word, the foundation for the word culture. Okay, It's a way of life based upon a way of worship. So Catholic culture is the way of life of Catholics, is the most important thing in their life, is reflected in their daily life, Catholic culture. However, in the last 50 to 100 years, this began to be used in a bit of a negative sense to point to these groups of, well, when we talk about Christian culture, so-called Christian groups, which are, number one, depressing man's reason, not offering a, uh, an avenue in which his reason can flourish or encouraging his rational faculties to flourish, and also his free will. And we found that very much so with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, somewhat with certain Seventh-day Adventists as they adhered more closely to Ellen G. White's false prophecies. Usually an indication of a cult is when you have a false prophet who is clearly a false prophet, and yet you have a massive number of people still following that person, not using their rational faculties as, say, normal people would, as we would. Okay? They become somewhat blinded. And that's exactly what we find tonight with the Mormon church or religion. To understand the Mormons, and again, we'll have our structure as we've had in the past weeks. We're going to have, I'll give a, a short, somewhat, I apologize for dry historical introduction to kind of get our grounding of where, who we're talking about, where we stand. I'll then turn the microphone over to my brother, Subdeacon Sebastian Carnazzo, to do a quick apologetic, and then we will gladly turn our microphone over to our gentleman who is here with us, who is a convert to the Catholic Church from Mormonism. So that's the structure of the evening. To understand Mormonism, we really have to go back to the movement of the Great Awakening in the early 19th, late 18th and early 19th century. The first Great Awakening taking place in the late 18th century. The second Great Awakening, which was more influential in the Mormon movement and also Seventh-day Adventism and eventually the Jehovah's Witnesses. The second Great Awakening taking place at the beginning of the century focused upon a certain emotional response to the preaching of the gospel. It was known for its religious expression, or almost you want to say fanaticism, of revivals that were present very much in upstate New York. The upstate area became known as the burned over district because of the fire of the Holy Spirit and a number of revivals that were happening over and over again. This religious fervor coming out of the Second Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening and Second Great Awakening also rooted very much, at least the Mormons, Joseph Smith, who we'll talk about in a minute, and Ellen G. White, 
in the Arminian theology, which was a Dutch Reformed theology. If you really want to get in this, you can go look this up on the internet, type it in there, Google it, and you'll find out a little bit more. But Arminianism was a response or reaction to extreme Calvinism and restored man very much in something of a Catholic sense to a personal responsibility for his faith. Your salvation was dependent upon how you lived on a day-to-day basis, and you could very much lose your salvation. Mixing those two things together, this emotional great awakening and Arminianism, will find ourselves in the religious fervor bed that gave rise to, as I said, the Seventh-day Adventists, and also Joseph Smith, who was born in 1805. Joseph Smith was not raised in any particular church, He did attend, as we know it, some Bible classes. Like many of his time, his family began to get involved in a form of religious treasure hunting. And by his teenage years, Joseph Smith started earning a little bit of side money for his family, going and seeking out what he called lost treasures. He used what he called also seer stones, rocks, by which he would discern the location of supposed lost treasure and attempt to bring that back to those that had hired him. We'll talk a little bit more about the seer stones in a few minutes. If it sounds a little bit crazy, we're going to get even crazier as we go along. He claims to have received his first vision from God in 1820 and was told that his sins were completely forgiven and that all of the churches of Christendom, including all of the many Protestant sects, had completely lost the faith. He believed in the great apostasy, that by as early as as the death of the last apostle, about 100 AD, that the church had completely apostatized. Also, the Seventh-day Adventists believe this, and the Jehovah's Witnesses. I talk about this in a Q&A section of our Apostolic Fathers series that we did about a year and a half ago. And you might go back and listen to that as we studied those early fathers and compared the thinking of men like St. Ignatius of Antioch and St. Polycarp to the writings of St. John and, and to see that by no means had these men lost the faith. But he claimed the great apostasy. The church had completely apostatized. In 1823, he believed the angel Moroni who had been a man at one point, was elevated to the level of angel, appeared to him to reveal to him the location of a very special lost treasure, some golden plates upon which he said were written in a reformed Egyptian, whatever that was to him, some special revelation formerly lost hundreds and hundreds of years before. He also was told in this location were some very special seer stones by which he would be able to translate these golden plates. Well, I should say that for four years he could not remove the plates. He told his friends they were there, but he was bound from being able to dig them, unearth them, uh, waiting for the special person who would be the key to be able to access these plates. In 1826, he was arrested for the crime of glass-looking or pretending to find lost treasure. As I said, it was a problem at the time. He was not the only one claiming to be able to do this. In 1827, he married his wife, 
Emma Hale, who he said was the key person that would allow him to go and take these plates, which he very quickly did, not showing them to anybody. He supposedly wrapped them in a cloth, brought them to his home, and was instructed by the angel Moroni to lock them in a chest. Nobody could see the plates, and he did not refer to the plates in the future in order to do his translation. Rather, he used these special seer stones. They're described at the time as crystals, although he, his earlier set, which he liked better, were, I guess, a brown color, the size of a small egg. And what he did was he took, I'm sorry, I have to use my deacon's hat because it's described his hat looked like a stovepipe hat, a top hat, okay, of sorts. It was white, and he would take these seer stones, place them in his hat, place the hat over his face, and translate from the hat what was locked in his chest. It may sound strange. He said that while he looked in the hat, the stones reflected the words to him, and he then dictated those words to his wife and later to a a close confidant of his. He did this publicly or in front of them, but also at some times he used a curtain and sat behind the curtain to translate these words. His translation was complete in 1829. According to Smith, the plates were taken back by the angel Moroni after the translation was complete. Smith received also during this time a vision of John the Baptist who appeared to him, uh, and, and a little later the apostles Peter, James, and John who ordained him a priest. Uh, and established him with apostolic authority and as the sole prophet of God. The Book of Mormon tells us, uh, the Book of Mormon is the translation, of course, of these golden plates. You can pick up a copy very easily at any of your used bookstores downtown, or when they come knocking on your door, you can ask for a copy of it. It tells the story of two migrations that we did not formerly know of, a migration of people from the Middle East during the time of the building of the Tower of Babel. These men left the Middle East, sailed on a boat across the sea, and came to live in America. They were destroyed, completely destroyed, in a massive battle. And later, during the Babylonian and Assyrian attacks, in a, right around 600 B.C., he claimed that another group left the Middle East, sailed across established themselves in America. These two split into two tribes, the Nephites and the Lamanites, who then had also another massive battle, and the Lamanites destroyed the Nephites. The Lamanites were cursed by God for their action, and their curse was that they received red skin. They were the forefathers of the American Indians. The introduction of the Book of Mormon says this, The crowning event recorded in the Book of Mormon is the personal ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ among the Nephites. He believed that before this battle took place, that the Lord came and preached in the Americas after His resurrection. Uh, The crowning event recorded in the Book of Mormon is the personal ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ among the Nephites soon after His resurrection. It puts forth the doctrines of the gospel, outlines the plan of salvation, and tells men what they must do to gain peace in this life and eternal salvation in the life to come. 
It is, for Mormons, the complete gospel. The Bible, as we know it, is reverenced by the Latter-day Saints. However, it contains certain errors and therefore is not completely trustworthy, they believe, and is to be corrected by the prophecies of Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon and his other teachings. This great apostasy that he believed took place among the early Christians and later also took place in America caused a problem on the earth. No longer did we have a valid priesthood. No longer did we have the sacraments. In fact, Christ's mission on earth, you could say, had for the most part failed. Joseph Smith was therefore chosen by God under a restored dispensation to restore the priesthood and to restore the sacraments, which he called the new endowments. It was a new movement of grace. And he claimed that in the state of Missouri was the original location of the Garden of Eden, and he was to be the leader of the new people of God who would establish themselves in Missouri in this new Garden of Eden, the place, the beginning of the revelation of God's theocracy and kingdom on earth. Smith and his followers soon set off to establish the New Jerusalem, but were waylaid in Kirtland, Ohio, when they received a number of converts to their movement, and they ended up staying in Kirtland, Ohio for a while. By the mid-1830s, Smith uh, had as many as 2,000 followers. He established what he called the United Order, by which people who joined him would voluntarily deed their property to him or to the church, and he would then give them back what they needed to live on. You can see what kind of man this was and the type of thinking. He declared that Jackson County, Missouri was the center of Zion. He soon left Kirtland, Ohio to try to establish a camp in Missouri, but was pushed out by the citizens of Missouri. He was beaten and left, and he went back to Kirtland to build a temple there. He claimed then that Kirtland was the eastern border of the Garden of Eden, and therefore he was in paradise. It was in Kirtland, after the building of the temple, that Smith began to have many difficulties and struggle, first of all financially. With the building of his temple, he encouraged the tithing so much among his community, spending that money, that he found that the whole community was, for the most part, broke. He also began his long challenge struggle with polygamy as he became involved in an adolescent serving girl in his home, Fanny Alger. Uh, He established in this debt crisis a banking system called the Kirtland Safety Society in which he sold notes to supposed real estate. Very quickly, his system went bankrupt and a warrant for Smith's arrest was issued now a second time. He fled Missouri on January 12, 1838, and settled in the town of Far West, Missouri. It was there that he named the church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He established an armed militia, and this armed militia became a point of contention between him and his fellow Missouri citizens. And in 1838, what we call the Mormon War, broke out. His armed militia, what he called the Danites, attacked non-Mormon towns, non-Mormons attacked Mormon farms, and eventually Smith ordered his militia 
to attack the state militia of Missouri. Not a good idea. Um, They lost terribly, and Smith was arrested and charged with treason. It was during that time that Brigham Young, who would become the next great leader of the Mormons and take them eventually to Utah, became prominent within the Latter-day Saints. But when Joseph Smith escaped, it said that he bribed the sheriff as he was heading to trial. He and his fellows with him that had been arrested escaped, and he sent Brigham Young off to Britain to preach his Mormon ideas to the British. Interesting, it was there that Mitt Romney's ancestors first heard the preaching of the Mormon teaching and a message, and they converted. They soon moved and joined the, the group later in Illinois. Smith, as he fled the authorities, left Missouri and headed to Illinois to establish a new temple in Illinois. It was in Illinois that he began to teach the doctrine of the proxy baptism for the dead. They focused upon genealogy and still do today in an attempt to baptize the dead who did not have a chance to convert to Mormonism when they were alive. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. He received or announced a new endowment from God of the priesthood a few weeks after he was enrolled in the Masonic Lodge and was elevated to the 33rd degree of the Masonic Lodge. Within a few weeks following that enrollment in the Masonic Lodge, he announced this new movement of the priesthood, which involved the vesting of the anointed ones who could enter into the temple and enjoy all of the ritual there with what we might call temple undergarments or underwear marked with an angle and a triangle and a compass, all images taken from his experience with the Masonic Lodge. Smith, as I said before, struggled with polygamy. Uh, And he never clearly taught the doctrine of polygamy as something to be held by the Latter-day Saints. Well, I say he did, but then he would change and he would flip-flop back and forth. By the 1840s, his polygamous tendencies got the better of him. He's said to have secretly married as many as 39 wives, some of whom were already married, some of whom were teenagers. Smith also restructured his church and began to preach the establishment of a worldwide theocracy. In 1848, he announced his candidacy for the presidency of the United States and established a secret group of what he called the Council of Fifty, who began determining or making decisions as to what laws they would follow as Mormons and which laws they would not. One of the first acts of the Council of Fifty was to ordain Smith as king of the millennial monarchy. In 1844, Smith was arrested again for treason. And while in jail, an armed group broke into the jail. He himself had smuggled in a pistol and got in a shooting contest with this armed group of men. He attempted to bail out of the window, but was shot a number of times and became one of the first Mormon martyrs. After a four-year succession crisis, Brigham Young, that man who had risen while he was in jail before and had been sent off to Britain, meanwhile had come back. Brigham Young must have been quite a powerful figure, and four years later was elected to the presidency. He led the group to Utah, and is best known for his 
outright teaching on the doctrine of polygamy. He had as many as 55 wives. When he first found out about the teaching on polygamy, he has said that it was the first time in my life that I desired the grave. (laughs) I guess he changed his mind. In 1890, the Latter-day Saints officially condemned the practice of polygamy. Today, which of course is is one of the major positions, where do these people stand on it? Officially condemned in 1890, and the church very much splintered over that issue. A number of groups breaking off and heading to other countries and breaking off from mainstream Latter-day Saints. Today, Mormons count 14 million plus and are found in virtually every country of the world. They have translated their literature into over 160 languages. Among their stranger doctrines, that Jesus visited America and preached to the lost tribes of Israel, that Missouri is the location of the Garden of Eden, they still believe that to be the case. Their doctrine of baptism for the dead, they believe that those who were not given a chance to become Mormons on earth enter into a spirit prison in which there are spirit missionaries who preach to them. But of course, everyone is required to have baptism by water and therefore to fulfill all righteousness. Mormons today engage in proxy baptism for the dead. And this is why they're interested in genealogy, to make sure all of those that have gone before them are baptized. They are currently employed by the Church of the Latter-day Saints Teams of missionaries microfilming Catholic and Protestant baptismal records, death records, birth records, so as to find out all of the people that have gone before them and have not had a chance to convert to Mormonism so that they can baptize them into the Mormon church. Among the strangest of their doctrines is their doctrine about God, which I will say very little only because it is extremely strange. There are a number of versions of this, but according to one version, God the Father pre-existed as a man in another universe. He was elevated by His Father. The, the Mormons struggle with the problem of infinite regress in their doctrine of God, and so there's an infinite regress of gods. The God the Father who we know, who is the ruler of this universe, pre-existed as a man. He lived a good life, was elevated to become the God of this universe, He himself had relations with a spirit wife and gave forth Jehovah God, or Jesus Christ, uh, and the Holy Spirit, and Lucifer. (laughs) He eventually came to earth, ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil with his spirit wife, and they produced men upon the earth. Uh, Jesus Christ also pre-existing the incarnation was given a body by the Virgin Mary. By some accounts, Brigham Young believed that God the Father had relations with the Virgin Mary, not the Holy Spirit overshadowing her, but actually had relations with her. This doctrine is not accepted in mainstream Mormonism anymore. You can see that it gets very, very, very strange. They also believe that you and I pre-existed as spirit beings, our parents giving us a body, freeing us from the spirit world. And if we live the life of a good Mormon today, we will eventually be elevated to the level of God and receive our own world to then populate. Lest we get any stranger, 
I will leave my comments there. I'm just very happy that we have a convert tonight from Mormonism who can hopefully clarify some of these stranger things for us. What I do want you to know that when you meet a Mormon at the door, my brother will be speaking about this a little bit more, he may claim all sorts of things that sound very good to you, that Jesus Christ is indeed God, but he is not the God that we believe him to be. That they accept the doctrine of the Trinity. But their doctrine of the Trinity is not Orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity. You need to know this and realize that when you meet these people at the door, just as you meet Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists, you have to be prepared. You have to know your stuff. You have to be willing to take time. And you have to be willing to meet them in charity. Many of the things that I've told you tonight and that you'll hear tonight they don't know. But they're doing in all charity what they think they should be doing. Okay, And so we meet them at the door in Christian charity and love, seeking to share the truth with them as they are seeking to share the truth with us. Okay, we will um, have our short section on apologetics, and then we'll come to our conversion story this evening. Please welcome Subdeacon Sebastian Carnazzo. Okay, first of all, uh, we've talked about three different cults now. We talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the Mormons. We talked about the Seventh-day Adventists. Some of them are more cultish than others, depending on their uh, affiliation with uh, L.N.G. White. But with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, you're definitely dealing with the classic cult. You have to understand, also with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, we talked a lot about the relationship of the Jehovah's Witness and the Seventh-day Adventists, but the similarity between the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons is that they will come to your door. Seventh-day Adventists rarely will be knocking at your door. But Jehovah's Witnesses will, and Mormons will, and you have to know the difference of how to deal with them, because they're coming to your door for two very different reasons. Jehovah's Witnesses that come and knock on your door, you'll notice it's usually a family or a group, a man, a woman, maybe a couple kids, a couple ladies, and they're coming because they belong to the local kingdom hall. And they've been assigned your neighborhood because they live ordinarily in your neighborhood somewhere. They've been assigned your particular neighborhood to deal with. Okay? So they have a personal commitment to your neighborhood. And so Jehovah's Witnesses oftentimes will come back more and more. If you talk to them nicely and, uh, and work with them, they'll keep coming back. It's nice for visits every couple months maybe. Uh, uh, if they do get a sense that you're trying to convert them or that you're, you're uh, antagonistic or that you're not making any progress, they will define you as a goat and you'll go into a database and they won't be knocking on your door anymore. But that's very different than the Mormons. The Mormon missionaries that come to your door are two young men on usually mountain bikes. You've seen them, the, you know, the black pants, the short white shirt and the little name tag. Nice, handsome young men. They're coming to your door because they have to. This is kind of the Mormon boot camp in a certain sense. And so the guys that come to your door, they're trained to come to your door. They have, they're experts, not as well trained as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Again, these are younger guys who haven't been doing this their whole life. But the young men that come to your door, you have to be much more careful because they are told that if there's any moment they see any antagonism or that they get a sense that you're not going to listen, They'll be on the bikes, and they'll go, and they'll never come back. And so you have to be very careful. If you want to talk to the Mormons, and I encourage you strongly to do this, 
You have to be much more careful with them as you're talking with them than you would a Jehovah's Witness. You have to be careful with them too. But the Mormons will very quickly get on their bikes and they'll be gone. So what do you do when they come knocking? How do you deal with them? Well, it's very different than a Jehovah's Witness and when you're dealing with your seven-day Adventist friend at work. The Mormons, because they have this different, very different theology and because of their understanding of the Bible and its corruption, you have to have a different game plan. And there are a lot of different strategies that are recommended, but many converts from Mormonism to Catholicism and Protestantism will tell you that the divide-and-conquer program works the best. And I'll explain to you how that works. First of all, and this is the handout. Does everyone have the handout? The first page, how to be a missionary to Mormons. Mormon missionaries will usually come to your door in pairs. They're smart. This is a debating technique. The Jehovah's Witnesses will never come to your door either by themselves. They'll always have two, or often it's three or four. And this is, again, a debating technique. It's very easy to argue with one person when you have five guys or a team working together, handing you literature back and forth. And so when those Jehovah's Witnesses or those Mormons knock on your door, realize if you're by yourself, you're at an instant disadvantage. doesn't matter how much you know, you're at an instant disadvantage from a debating standpoint. And anyway, so they will come to your door in pairs, the, the Mormons, ordinarily just two of them, and knock, and they will usually declare to you that they have something important for you to know about your family or about the future or about the present situation. What you want to do is invite them in. Smile and invite them in. Speak to them with the words of Christ. Let them see the face of Christ. And offer them a glass of water. And offer them a place to sit. Right? A lot of times they come knocking and someone doesn't open or slams the door on them. So remember the conversion stories you've heard already from our Jehovah's Witness and our Seventh-day Adventists. They said the things that brought them to the Catholic Church were not these flashy arguments or something that someone said at the door real fast. It was that someone, someone reflected Christ to them. And so that's the most important thing to remember. When they come to your door, you want to be polite, love them, Realize they're not there to deceive you, though they're, at least intentionally, they will deceive you if you listen to them, but they're not intending to deceive you. They think they have the truth. And so you need to understand and, and, and be, uh, work with them in charity. So invite them in and offer them a glass of water. And this does two things. Like I said, first of all, then they will see charity. They will experience Christ immediately as they're speaking to you and they're, and they're, and they're seeing you work with them that will also begin a relationship with them that you have to have if you want them to keep coming back and you want them to listen to you and you want them to be honest with you as you dialogue with them. So the two things really important here. Remember, conversion is the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so they have to see Christ in you. Fancy arguments will do nothing. You can win the argument and they'll get on their bikes and right away. Number two. As a teen, the pair will go through the present version of their history. I say present version because the versions change so many times. The present version, you can find it in any book of Mormon. And ordinarily, the Mormon missionaries will have a little flip chart. Has anyone seen the flip chart? They come, they sit down, and the one who's the, the leader of the two, the more uh, educated, will flip a little book, a little sandwich board on the table in front of you, and tell you the story with pictures. And on the back, he's got some information, he keeps going. And, then, and they'll take turns going back and forth. Again, this is a very good presentation technique. Keeps you focused, you're seeing pictures, you're listening, and then you're seeing the other guy talk. This is all, you see this also at a you know, door-to-door salesman for just about anything. These guys are experts at what they're doing. Allow them to give the whole presentation without an interruption. If you interrupt and jump in, or use what some people call the flamethrower technique, 
They're just going to run. And they're not going to want to listen to you. You'll do nothing. Okay? It doesn't matter how much you know about Mormonism. You've got to be gentle. And let them tell the whole story. It's not a very long presentation. We'll start with Joseph Smith having the visions, finding the tablets, writing the stuff down. And that's their presentation of the basic history of their church. The very simple version. Like I said, you can find it in the introduction to the Book of Mormon. And you want to be doing two things while they're giving this presentation. You want to be praying. Because remember, conversion is not fancy arguments. Conversion is the work of the Holy Spirit. So you want to be praying for them. You want to be praying for yourself that Christ will speak through you, that you can be a window through which the light of Christ can shine. Pray the entire time. And while you're praying, listen intently. Give them the respect that they want and they need, because you're going to need them to respect you when it's your turn to talk. And if you've been jumping in, and they're, not going to, you know, they're going to respond very nicely with charity if you've responded to them with charity. When they're done giving their version of the history of their religion, the present version of it, they will give their testimony. Okay, now, this is the normal situation. I was just talking to someone who's talking to Mormons right now uh, who came tonight, and he said they didn't follow this pattern. Well, because they kind of jumped in on them with a little flamethrower early on. Then they're going to give their testimony after their presentation. And it would go something like this. I testify to you that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. The Mormon church is true. Jesus is the Christ. The president of the Mormon church is a prophet on earth today. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And they have this memorized. They'll look very intently at you. Wow, that's impressive. They will then offer you a book of Mormon summarizing a part of the preface that reads, and this is in every book of Mormon, like I said, if you open up the book of Mormon, in the preface, it has this. We invite all men everywhere to read the book of Mormon, to ponder in their hearts the message it contains, and then to, look at this, ask God, so you ponder it, then you ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if the book is true. Okay, that's a reasonable, I guess. But look at this. Those who pursue this course and ask in faith will gain a testimony of its truth. So you're already set up. If you pray and ask in all earnestness and in faith, then you will receive a testimony from God that this is true. If they come back the next week and you say, you know, I read it, and <laughs> I think this is the funniest thing I ever read. Um, listen, well, you didn't pray, did you? No, I did pray. Well, did you pray intently? Yeah, I really did. Well, then you didn't pray in all earnestness or in all faith. So you're, there's no way out of it uh, for them with this argument. They've got you locked in. And this is the reason why you're not going to actually take that approach. Ask in faith and will gain a testimony of its truth and, and divinity by the power of the Holy Spirit. See Moroni 10, 3 through 5. This is a summary in their preface of this important passage from Moroni. This is usually the, clo uh, the close of the presentation. The missionaries will now be waiting for your reaction. Politely accept the Book of Mormon from them. Thank you. Okay? No matter what you do from there on out, you've eliminated one copy that they can give out that day. <laughs> I'm serious. Also, that time you spend talking with them will be one less household they can go to. Now, whatever you do next, then you're going to excuse yourself for a moment while you retrieve the second page of this handout. Okay? <laughs> I put it on a separate sheet of paper. It's only Mormon documents. There's no anti-Mormonism on it. Well, it's full of anti-Mormonism, but it's their own stuff. So, it's, an, it's very safe to bring to the table. The first page here is not what you want to bring to the table because they'll, they'll immediately go on their mountain bikes. 
to be honest with them, I was at a lecture about Mormons, and I received this bunch of quotes from the Book of Mormon and some of your other literature. Would you mind if we kind of go through a little bit? Okay. So you set it down in front of them. What you'll see is on the left-hand side are quotes from the Book of Mormon. On the right-hand side are quotes from their prophets and some of their other literature. Okay? What you're going to do is first turn them. You'll see I've laid it out for you at the top of that second page. Read Moroni 10, 3 through 5. Again, you want to do this because it reinforces that idea that the Book of Mormon is the inspired Word of God and the fullness of the Gospel. And if you truly believe in God and pray earnestly, then it's revealed to you this is true. You want to have them read it out loud to you. It's going to be very strange for them. For you to say, would you please turn with me to Moroni chapter 10? And they're going to, uh, yeah. So they're going to open it up. Could you read uh, verses 3 through 5, please? Yeah, sure. I know that by memory. Well, just go ahead and read it out loud. So you're going to, right there at the beginning, you're going to have them read that out loud so you can get that up front and talk about that. Have them explain to you what they think it means. And then you're going to ask them to read to you the Book of Mormon 3, Nephi, chapter 19, verses 15 through 18 very carefully. Have them explain to you what it means. And then you're going to have them read the other side, which is from some of their other literature. The first quote from the Book of Mormon says, should we pray to Jesus? Answer that question. Absolutely we should pray to Jesus. But their other literature says, no way. Don't pray to, only pray to the Father. Do not pray to Jesus. Okay, so a contradiction. Ask them which one's true. Can't have it both ways. Make them make a choice. And you're going to do the same thing with each one of these quotes. Make them make a choice. And what you hope to do is that they're going to align with one side or the other. They're either going to make a choice for the Book of Mormon or their prophets. And a lot of them have already started to reject some of their prophets, especially Brigham Young. And so it's, oftentimes they will align themselves with this, especially because they just read Moroni chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. So... Once you get them to clarify that they believe the Book of Mormon is true, but maybe these prophecies and these other things, this other literature, that's maybe uh, got some errors in it. Okay, fine. So then, you can trust the Book of Mormon? Yes. Great. You're done with your first meeting with them. That, that will take you an hour, easily. Then they're going to go away. You're going to set up, make sure you set up an appointment with them and get the date, the time, get their phone number, when they're going to come back. Because they may not want to come back after they've studied some of this stuff with you. They come back, and in between you have one week usually, and you need to do some serious study. Okay? This sheet is just to get you started. All right? You're going to do some serious study, and I've given you at the bottom of the first sheet, uh, Harry Ropp, the Mormon papers, a former Mormon, wrote some great literature. Also, our convert is going to give you uh, some references, too. He brought a whole box of stuff for you to look into. So you want to start doing some studying. You can get on the Internet. Be careful. I recommend very highly look at the stuff that's written by former Mormons. That's the best stuff. Okay? Then, when they come back, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to break down whatever they aligned themselves with. Did they align themselves with the Book of Mormon first? Your study for that next week is going to be all about the Book of Mormon. Everything about the Book of Mormon that contradicts itself internally. And then you're going to lay out for them all the errors in the Book of Mormon where it says one thing, it says the other thing. And so they're going to have to start to make decisions between parts of the Book of Mormon. And what will happen is the things that they felt safe and gave them truth will suddenly start to disintegrate in front of them. But be careful. With those who are coming out of a cult, you have to immediately give them something to grab onto. And so you better be ready to witness to them about Jesus Christ and his church and the truth of the gospel and the trustworthiness of the Bible. And these books and the references that I already gave you and that you'll see with our convert will help you with that. 
Okay, so again, be ready at that second visit. As you start to see them falter and start to wonder what's going on, you see their, their whole faith crumbling, be ready to reach out and grab their hand and make sure they reach out and grab the hand of Jesus Christ. They need it right then. Because it's very easy for a former Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or a cult member to fall into agnosticism or atheism once they realize the errors of the whole thing. Okay, now... At the second visit, the other thing you're going to be doing is you start to break down this stuff with them. Some other topics you want to look into, for example, is the American Indians. You heard about that already, right? The Lamites are the American Indians. Well, guess what? We have modern genetics. And there's modern Mormon geneticists, too, that have found this, unfortunately, for them. The Lamites cannot be, in their story, the modern American Indians. Modern American Indians, genetically, are East Asians. Okay, they've come across, we always thought, through the, across the Bering Strait. And so they're not of Semitic blood, and their genetics are very different. So modern genetics is something Joseph Smith never really thought was going to happen. Well, now all we do is look at the genetics, and it's completely different bloodlines or genetic lines. Okay? So you can talk to them about that. You can also talk to them about archaeology. Right? This is about this ancient world that was here for so long. Right? Well, Mormons have gotten into archaeology. And you can talk to him about uh, Leonard Arrington. Leonard Arrington was a Mormon at Brigham Young University who decided to get together with a couple other guys and build an archaeological foundation and center there at Brigham Young. And he started doing some research. He wrote a couple books. And the farther he got into it, he realized there was no evidence at all. And he left the Mormon church. You can also talk to them about the Pearl of Great Price or the Book of Abraham. This is some Egyptian text that Joseph Smith ended up purchasing from a door-to-door salesman, and he ended up trying to translate them. And he wrote what's called a grammar of uh, Reformed Egyptian, and he translated this as what's called the Book of Abraham. Again, he wasn't anticipating that anyone who knew anything about hieroglyphics would ever see this thing. Those who know about hieroglyphics, including Jehovah, uh, Mormons who have decided to study hieroglyphics and Egyptology, have now looked at these things and realized it has nothing to do with what Joseph Smith said it says. So you can talk to them about that as well. It's been a, uh, also a major problem for them, and many uh, Mormons have left because of that. So that's the Pearl of Great Price or the Book of Abraham. And you, again, you're going to learn all this as you start to do that research on that second week. And also, those of you who are Catholics here tonight have a major advantage. Remember that great apostasy? You want to ask them on that second visit or third visit, when you see them starting to crumble, ask them about the great apostasy. How did it happen? When was the date? And they'll fumble around, well, maybe. They'll sometimes say, you know what, John, John the Apostle died, maybe, or who knows? We don't know, but it was sometime early. We just know it happened. Really? So now you're dealing with history. Well, that's kind of difficult. But what you can do is you can take them to the Scriptures here now, especially once you've destroyed the Book of Mormon and their other literature in front of them, and show them the authority and the authenticity of the Scriptures, of the Bible. You can take them to some important passages, and I'll just read those to you very quickly or give you the references. The end of Matthew's Gospel. What did Jesus say? Go out and preach and baptize, right? And what did he say? Chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, verse 20, all that I have taught you, and I am with you even to the close of the age. Okay, so Jesus promised, and he ordered them to go out and make converts of all nations. Jesus would have had to been wrong at that point. He would have not known what was going to happen, because immediately the church was going to fall apart. And furthermore, he wouldn't have really been with them. 
because he promises here to be with them, but the great apostasy says he was not. So this is a really important passage to take them, if you're a Catholic, and show them this. The church never fell into great apostasy. Also, there's a couple other passages in the Gospel of John. John chapters 14 through 16 contain what are called the five sayings of the Holy Spirit. Really important. In John chapter 14, verse 15, and 16 and 17, we hear about the parakletos, the counselor, the paraclete, that Jesus promised would be with the church. That's chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. He also promised in chapter 14, verse 25, listen to this, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, verse 26, but the counselor, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. And the Holy Spirit is the one that's the guarantee of the apostolic tradition. And he goes on, he tells them again through chapter 15 and 16, similar things. Okay, and you can go back and do this research, the five saints of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, what did Paul understand in the early church period about the presence of the Holy Spirit and the passing on the apostolic tradition? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He says to Timothy, this is his last letter to Timothy. He's in chains. He's about to die in Rome. And he writes this letter to Timothy in Ephesus, and he says this, Follow the pattern of the sound words which you have heard from me. In faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by your own memory. No, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So Paul says, Timothy, you guard this by the power of the Spirit that dwells in us. And then he says again, this is the last passage we'll look at, chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Multiple generations here, Paul foresees. How is it going to happen? By the phone game? By memory? No. By the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would be the church and Jesus' own presence that we see through Acts of the Apostles, the Pauline Epistles, the Book of Revelation, the entire New Testament. And, as my brother told you, as you read the early church fathers, Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp as well. Okay? Thank you very much. Have you been learning a few things in this series, I hope? Mr. Steve Clifford drove for about two and a half hours to be with us tonight. Please welcome Mr. Steve Clifford. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invite tonight. You want to impress the missionaries when they come to your house? Pronounce this Maroni. Maroni. The Jaredites. The Nephites, the Lamanites, and they'll be very impressed. It's, it's hard when you're not part of the Mormon culture to know how to pronounce some of the, some of the words. <laughs> Good evening. The apostles failed in their mission. They neglected to properly appoint their successors. When the last apostle died, the keys of the kingdom were lost from the earth. The church given to them by Jesus Christ lay in ruins, overcome by the forces of hell. 
the so-called Christian church was no longer the Lord's church. A new organization, a great and abominable church, came into existence. This wicked church, founded by the devil, became known as the Catholic Church. In her corruption, she took away many plain and precious parts from the Bible, rendering it useless for conveying the gospel truth. It remained an apostate church until the keys of the kingdom of heaven were restored to the prophet Joseph Smith. As a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS, or Mormon, as they're also called, I knew all of this was true. I knew the great apostasy happened. I knew Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, and that he had been entrusted with the task of bringing to mankind the Book of Mormon, the divinely inspired scriptures that were another testament of Jesus Christ. Most of all, I knew the church Joseph Smith had restored and organized, the LDS church, was true. I knew all this by the power of the Holy Spirit. After all, we Mormons just knew these things that we'd been taught by his church were true because we had complete and total trust in the prophets and in his apostles and in his church. I was born and raised in Utah, the oldest of two children. We were brought up in a nominally religious family, and yet religion played a major role in my upbringing in Utah. My parents were also born in Utah and raised in Utah in families connected all the way back to the very beginnings of the Mormon Church. My ancestors eventually settled out in Utah. My great-great-great-grandfather on my mother's side was probably the first to join the Mormon Church in February of 1832, less than two years after Joseph Smith had formed the Mormon Church. Grandpa Alva Benson convinced his wife, father, mother, and the rest of his father's family to join the church in the winter of 1832. They moved to Jackson County, Missouri in November of 1832, but they were driven out of the county by a mob because they were Mormons. In 1834, they moved to Clay County, Missouri, and again, they were driven out by a mob. Four years later, they were forced out of Missouri by a combination of militia troops and vigilantes that Governor Boggs had commissioned or given the order to expel the Mormons from Missouri. In his um, what's called an extermination order, Governor Boggs wrote that the Mormons are in open and avowed defiance of the laws, and he accused them of having made war upon the people of the state, and it ordered that his militia was to expel the Mormons from Missouri, and if they don't go to 
exterminate them, to kill them. And so with this background, um, the Mormons obviously have a defensive mechanism that will be thrown up if you try to talk to them or th if you accuse them of things or you uh, attack their religion or attack their prophet. They've been attacked before. How many governors in the United States do you know of that have issued an extermination order against a religion? It's pretty unusual, hopefully. I am a fifth generation Mormon. My sister and I went to the Mormon church. We participated in all of the activities that the church had to offer. We went to Sunday school. I was ordained into the priesthood. Every Mormon male is ordained into the priesthood. Their baptism takes place at the age of eight. Everyone is baptized at eight. Only males can hold the priesthood. At the age of 12, I was ordained as a um, deacon. At the age of 14, I was ordained as a teacher. And at the age of 16, I was ordained as a priest. I did go through, I, I would estimate, 200 proxy baptisms in the Logan Temple for the dead. I participated in every, every activity that Mormon Church had to offer because to be a Mormon in Utah is to do whatever the church tells you to do. So I attended seminary program through uh, my high school years. At the end of my high school, I was given a choice. The bishop called me into his office and said, I want you to go on a mission. Generally, missions are for 19-year-olds, uh, 19 to 21 year olds. That's why they all look young when you see them. And they always come in pairs. Uh, it was mentioned before there is a more knowledgeable partner in the pair. Actually, it's not knowledge. It's simply the fact that he's perhaps been in the mission field a little bit longer than the one that, that is with him. So it's more a seniority based. They will switch the missionaries out after a period of uh, maybe two months and they'll get a new partner. So what will happen is when the missionaries come, the older of the 19-year-olds, the one that's been there the longest, will be the one that primarily talks. A month later, the one that didn't talk is now the senior missionary and is doing the talking. And they have a very specific canned set of things that they're going to talk to you about, as was discussed before. Ask them any questions outside of their canned discussion, and they will try to bring you back. They're very good at this, bring you back to the discussion. If you want to get into more difficult areas, history, archaeology, any of those type of things, they will generally bring someone with them the next time they come to visit you. And it will probably be an older member of the local ward who is an expert in that particular area. And that's the person that will answer the questions, not the missionaries. They're 19-year-olds. They don't have all the answers but they do know where to go to get the answers. They will accept your literature. They will accept whatever you give them, but they're not allowed to read it. So in all graciousness, they'll take it with, but they won't read it. Very rarely will you ever get a missionary to convert while they're in the mission field. They're very carefully monitored and controlled and not allowed to do much of anything. They have to report at the end of every day all of the contacts they've had, all of the things they discussed, and they have a checklist, and they have to go through all of that. And they're actually, um, usually it's a retired couple that are their um, mission president responsible for the missionaries in that area. 
and that mission president becomes their, his wife, their mom, and the president, their dad, and just basically treat them as kids and, and monitor everything they do. So it's very difficult to um, open up a conversation with the missionaries and be able to follow it up. The other reason they switch the missionaries out, new partners each time, is so that they don't get too comfortable with each other and begin to trust each other and talk to each other about, what did you think about what we heard today? Did that set off any alarms for you? They don't dare speak those kind of things to each other because they're under an obligation to report that to their mission president. So um, the missionaries don't necessarily trust each other because they're new with each other and they don't open up with each other. My experience has been that generally what we can do and everything that, that was told to you tonight is absolutely right on, except for the pronunciations. You might want to work on that. <laughs> you need to work on that. But everything else is true. Um, we need to plant the seeds of doubt in their mind. Just plant those seeds. So let's talk about my journey. I met and married my wife, Anna, in Germany. She was a Catholic, had fallen away from the church. This is back in the early 70s. And as God would have it, uh, we were married by a Catholic priest. I was Mormon, had fallen away from the church by that time. And she was a fallen away Catholic, but this priest friend of hers had agreed to marry us. So we were married in a Catholic church. However, I was not going to be a Catholic. I was not going to become a member of that great and abominable church. But I did agree that our children could be raised Catholic. That was one of the requirements in order for us to get married by the Catholic priest. As I had to agree to that, I did. My wife uh, eventually came back to the church about the time the kids had to start CCD. And she started taking them to church and, and to CCD. They were both baptized, confirmed in the church. And I went to Mass with my family, thinking that was the best way to, to keep the family together. So we did this for almost 23 years. Um, she remained Catholic and, and brought the kids up Catholic, and I remained a staunch Mormon, not practicing. But I would never renounce my faith um, because I knew the sacrifices that my family had gone through to join the Mormon church. The last of my family to come into the church was my grandmother. She and her whole family were converted to Mormonism. They, they lived in Switzerland. The missionaries went to Switzerland and converted the whole family from Judaism. So Grandma Kaufman and all of the family were all Jews from the uh, dispersion up into, into Europe. We didn't know this for many, many years. It's just been in the last few years that our family has finally realized that the secret of the Kaufman family, although we should have known all along, it was so I had a deep love for my grandmother, and, and I knew the sacrifices she had made. She had tuberculosis when the missionaries converted the family, and she wasn't allowed to travel to Utah. So her sister stayed behind with her until the tuberculosis subsided enough for her and her sister to make the trip over and to slip past the immigration people in, in New York and then make the journey on out to Utah. Grandma and her sister eventually married uh, Grandpa and his brother, uh, an arranged marriage out in Utah. Um, I didn't want to give up my Mormon heritage, knowing what my, my ancestors have gone through, the suffering, the struggle. 
and knowing how my parents felt about our heritage and especially knowing the Mormon Church's view of the Catholic Church. It was pretty obvious. We lived out in Utah, my wife and I, for three years after I got out of the Air Force. I was in the Air Force when I met her over in Germany. She's German. Got out, went to Utah, went to college, got my degree, got a commission in the Army, went back into the Army. So we ended up uh, in Utah for three years, very much ostracized because my wife was Catholic and she was German, and there was a lot of animosity. But um, we did eventually end up uh, back in Germany and, and around in other places. I had no desire to be a Catholic, anything but Catholic. And, um, and I told my wife that, and, and she knew, she understood, she never pressured me, so we were fine. Life was good, I sat on the fence, I wasn't a good Mormon, I wasn't a, a, a Catholic, and so everything was fine, but something was bothering me. I kept thinking, you know, I think she's trying to convert me. <laughs> and I confronted her one morning at the, at the breakfast table, and I said, are you trying to convert me? And she said, no, I'm not. I'm, I've never done anything. But down inside, she, she knew, she and a lot of her friends, she was in the Legion of Mary at this point. Um, you, you must know what I'm talking about then. And, and the Legion started praying for me, and for my conversion, and so I was being bugged. It was, it was really bothering me. So she said, no, I'm not. I'm not, absolutely not. But she knew that, that it was working, the prayers were working. So one day she said, there's this couple that's coming to uh, Great Falls, to St. Catherine of Siena, to give a talk. This was in November of 1993. And uh, I was w their converts, the Catholic Church. I was wondering if you might want to go and hear what they have to say. And I said, not really. I, I would not like to. But if you can get tickets, um, then do that. It was all sold out. No tickets available whatsoever. So I was off the hook. It was a Saturday morning. Saturday morning, we get a phone call. Somebody calls up and says, I have two tickets. I need somebody to take them. So I ended up having to go to this presentation. Scott and Kimberly Hahn. And so, um, so I went to the presentation, and I listened to what he was having to say. And Scott talked about his conversion story, talked about how he went on this detective mystery-solving hunt to find the key to destroying the Catholic Church and destroying their arguments. And in his research, he was led into the Catholic Church from Protestantism. And I remember vividly thinking to myself when he said that, you didn't do your homework. You did not look into the Mormon Church. Because had you looked into the Mormon Church, you would have found that obviously the Mormon Church is the true church. And so um, I made up my mind that I was going to go back, do the research, and show Scott Hahn the errors of his ways. <laughs> and so I went back and researched the Mormon church to make sure that I could present it to him in a way that he would be able to grasp it. And um, as I did the research, here I am. <laughs> um, I realized the, the problems with the Mormon Church. And um, this was in November of 93 when I, I attended the presentation. By December, I was absolutely convinced the Mormon Church was wrong. But I was devastated, absolutely devastated. 
And, and it's absolutely true what you say, that when, when that light comes on, that the Mormon church has been deceiving me all of these years, and my family, my ancestors, all of us have been led astray and deceived, it's tough. What am I going to do now? And so um, oftentimes, as was said, those who realize they've been misled fall away and say, I'm not going to trust anybody or anything that has to do with religion again. I couldn't do that. I had to find out what is true. If the Mormon church is not true, what is true? It can't be the Catholic church. So I went after the Protestant churches to find out, you know, what is their claim to fame? How can they say that they are the true disciples of Christ? And so I, I researched the, the Protestant. Well, it's hard to research because there's so many different things to go after. And I realized right away that, you know what, Protestant history all leads back to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther leads back to the Catholic Church. And there we are again, the Catholic Church. So I, I did some more research and came to realize that there was no great and total apostasy in the early church. The early church, the apostles passed on what was given to them by Christ to their successors. And their successors passed it on to their successors. They handed it on to each other. And the early Christians were willing to die for that truth that they'd been given, that they'd been handed on to them. And so I just couldn't see that break in the continuity of the church in the early church history, early church fathers. Many of our separated brothers and sisters in Christ find the same path into the Catholic Church through the early church history, apostolic fathers, and the early church writings. That's where you find the Catholic Church. So as I'm reading this, I'm saying, hey, I've been going to the Catholic Mass for 23 years, and here's this guy from the first and second century, and they're going to the same thing that I've been going to 2,000 years later. That is the Catholic Church, that I recognized it, you know, the sacrificial nature, the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and the sacraments, and, and baptism, and, and all of these things just all fit together. So, because of uh, my tutoring through the Legion of Mary at that point, I came into the Catholic Church on February 19th of 1994. So you can see my conversion took about four months from Scott Hahn to baptism. Mormon baptism is not valid in the eyes of the Catholic Church. It is not valid because their understanding of the nature of God is so different from what we understand is the uh, triune God, the Trinity. Because of that, even though they're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, using water, the proper matter, the proper form, their understanding of the Trinity is so vastly different from ours that it is not valid. So Father Peffley conditionally baptized me, and uh, on that day, February 19th, 1994, I received baptism, uh, confirmation, Holy Eucharist. Our marriage was, uh, was then validated. And uh, I also, because we weren't sure about the baptism at that time, I also went to confession with Father Peffley uh, the night before I was received into the church. Came in on a Saturday morning, regular Mass. All of these prayer partners, prayer warriors, were there for my, my uh, baptism. 
and it's gone from there. I, I was in the Legion of Mary. Uh, I was uh, one year after I came into the church, I was elected as a vice president of the Curia, and uh, very active in the Legion. I um, am now teaching uh, RCIA and uh, confirmation class in CCD, and I'm also a candidate in the permanent diaconate formation program. Uh, so, God willing, God willing, I'll be uh, ordained in uh, January of 2014. There's a ton of things that we can talk about. I'm sure you have lots of questions. There's no way I'm going to be able to answer them all. So let's get started. Don't forget, Deuteronomy chapter 18. You will know a false prophet when they say something will come true and it doesn't come true. You have no fear of them. Okay? All right. Now, questions about Mormonism? The guy knocks on your door. Yes. Going back to Missouri at, I believe, Nauvoo, uh, yes. where they settled. Before they were kicked out, there were a lot of local Masons that were complaining right. that the Mormon church was inducting all kinds of people into their church as through Masonic rituals. Could you maybe comment on that and yep. the connection? Good question. Nauvoo, another uh, point-making uh, pronunciation, <laughs> Nauvoo. Joseph Smith, when he moved his main body to Nauvoo, Illinois, set up Nauvoo as a Mormon town. He was the mayor. He also had set up the Mormon militia and had somehow gotten himself appointed as lieutenant general, three-star general. He was the highest-ranking military officer in the United States military at that time. He invited the Freemasons, or the Masons, into Nauvoo, Illinois to set up a, a Masonic lodge. They did so. He gave them the building. They set up the lodge. They immediately elevated him to the 33rd degree. A short time after that, he began to teach people about the temple ceremonies, the endowments and the rituals, the anointings, the washings. As he was establishing his temple ceremonies, he was taking directly from the Masonic rituals. He was even using the Masonic Hall for his temple ceremonies. And so he had broken the code of secrecy of the Masons. He had exposed the ceremonies and the secret handshakes and the other things to women, which was not allowed at that time in Freemasonry. And so the Masons, who he had invited in, felt betrayed. They also felt that when you betray that trust, you have committed the ultimate against Freemasonry and need to be punished for it with death. So there was a big problem between the Masons and, and the Mormons at that point. You can go to Utah today and find that that animosity still exists. Mormons are not allowed to be members of the Masonic Lodge in Utah. If you're a good Mormon, you need not apply to Masonry. Now, that's not true in other states, but in Utah, there's still that animosity between the two. So, uh, so yes, there is definitely a connection there between Masonry and Mormonism because a lot of what Joseph Smith incorporated into his bizarre teachings as well as some of the more core teachings were borrowed from a lot of different places. He borrowed things from all over and just came up with this sort of hybrid religion that includes the Masonic rituals. Yeah, it's the same thing we had found with uh, Charles Taze Russell and also Ellen G. White. I mean, these people were a product of their time. Based on your experience, what's the best way to uh, 
talk to a Mormon with whom you're friends about the religion or about uh, the Catholic side versus the Mormon side. Right. I, that's, that's great. I, I've had many really good Mormon uh, friends. I've shared an office at work with a Mormon, and we've had good discussions. We have to allow them the respect to, to their beliefs and listen to what they have to say. But we also, if we listen to them, similar to listening to missionaries, we then buy the right to speak ourselves. So listen first, and then witness to them what it is that we believe. I believe the worst thing to do is to attack Joseph Smith, and it's a very easy target to, to go after. The Book of Mormon, any of their doctrines, the writings, it's not productive because they're going to immediately turn you off and not want to talk to you. They'll think that you're uh, persecuting them. They do have a persecution history. Joseph Smith was tarred and feathered a number of times, and many of the other members of hierarchy. Tar and feathering is not a pleasant experience, if you've ever heard how it's done. It's not pretty. And so he went through this a number of times, and then eventually was killed. They call it a martyrdom. Uh, by a mob. And so they do have this persecution complex, and if you try to make them think that you're persecuting them, you're not going to make any headway. My advice is we have the truth. We have the fullness of the truth. We have the apostolic authority. We have history. We have the early church fathers and the writings. We have all of the evidence to support our beliefs. We have 2,000 years of existence of the Catholic Church. And so, uh, rather than attacking Mormonism, explain and defend what we believe. And then you're non-confrontational, and I, I think you're going to make a lot more headway that way. It takes a lot longer, and it requires a lot more patience, but I think it's what we're called to do. I understand what they believe is they, um, that Jesus, after his crucifixion, visited other sheep. Right. And that's the sheep in the North American continent. The Book of Mormon describes how Jesus came to the North American yeah. continent. Yeah, what, what I was asking is, but don't you think there could be some legitimacy that, that maybe after the crucifixion, Jesus did visit other parts of the world? Could be. It could be. But the fact of the matter is, we know Jesus appeared to lots of people. And the other sheep may refer to Gentiles, non-Jews. But we don't have any record of that. The Mormons claim they have a record of that. The Mormons in the Book of Mormon say that Jesus Christ, after his crucifixion, came to the American continent and chose 12 apostles and established the church here on the North American continent, just like he did in the Holy Land. He did that here. And so, just like in the Holy Land, the church fell into apostasy, the Book of Mormon tells us that the church that he established here fell into apostasy as well. So the restoration from Joseph Smith is actually the third time. Their hope is that he got it right this time. And just, just remember, as my brother was saying, use the archaeological lack of evidence. Uh, it's a tool in your tool belt because there's no basis there, and also the lack of DNA evidence for his claims. Sir, could you briefly describe... Uh, the three levels of the afterlife that Mormons believe in, and what's the difference between a Catholic parish church and a Mormon temple in terms of what they look like? Okay, sure. There are what the Mormons call the three kingdoms of heaven. There are three degrees of, of heaven. 
there is the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the telestial kingdom. And um, I have a chart which would take probably two hours to explain to you, but, but basically all of us are destined for one level of heaven or another. The celestial kingdom is reserved for Mormons. And even within the celestial kingdom, there are three degrees of habitation, I guess, in the, in the celestial kingdom. And only the top level are the ones who are destined for eventual godhood themselves. The terrestrial kingdom is made up of all honorable people who did not accept Mormonism. So it was mentioned before that the missionaries um, and the Mormons in their proxy baptism are baptizing those who are in the spirit prison waiting to be baptized into the Mormon church. There are others in the spirit prison that may not accept the Mormon church. They're going to heaven anyway, but they're going to the lowest kingdom in heaven. I've also heard it uh, described that the celestial kingdom is overseen by God the Father. The terrestrial kingdom, the middle one, Christ visits and rules over that kingdom. And then the telestial kingdom, the lowest one, is where the Holy Spirit presides. The telestial kingdom is the kingdom of heaven reserved for the wicked of the world. So the wicked of the world are going to heaven. It's not the top level, it's not going to godhood, but it is heaven. Those who are cast into outer darkness, into hell, are what the Mormons call the sons of perdition. And there are different ways of defining what that is, but basically it begins with Cain killed Abel. Cain is a son of perdition. Lucifer and, and the one-third of the angels who, who fought against God and against Christ's plan were cast out. They are sons of perdition. Brigham Young taught very, very clearly and very specifically that anyone who leaves the Mormon church and becomes an apostate becomes a son of perdition. So I would not even be able to go to where the wicked of the world are at because I've rejected Mormonism. Can you see how that might influence people not to leave the church? Steve, could we post that on our website, that diagram that you have there? Would oh, that be okay? It's on my website. It's on I your website. To, yes. We'll link it on our okay. website. There is a lot of information about Mormonism there. The good question to kind of wrap up our, our three-part series, why is it that people follow Charles Taze Russell, Ellen G. White, Joseph Smith? Because to us, it just seems absolutely crazy oftentimes. When we're looking for a religious and emotional experience, rather than looking for rational truth, we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble. When we don't provide a healthy culture and life for people within the church, they're going to go looking for God in other places. It's our obligation not only to meet these people at the door, but to make our parishes strong, to get involved in, uh, in Legion of Mary or our Bible studies, if our parishes are healthy, our society will be healthy. So let's make our parishes strong, members of the Institute of Catholic Culture, and we'll stop that flood out to Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons. Get yourselves educated, learn what they teach, but more importantly, learn what you believe to be able to give a reasoned answer for the hope that you have in your heart. God bless you.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.